0: Overworked, a podcast, bold storytelling, balanced lives, further futures.
1: Welcome to Overworked with myself, Mossme, Challen, Caitlin, and Jill. Today, we're discussing a topic that we can all relate to, climbing the proverbial ladder, both in the entrepreneurial world and in the corporate one. We also speak with Eric Severinghouse, serial entrepreneur and author of Scale Your Everest a little bit later in the episode. So as we've been researching this topic, we've really been learning that the rate of women entrepreneurs has really grown, which was kind of interesting to us because if if you remember in episode one, we talked about the impact of COVID, having um, women in the workforce actually taking a step back. And now we're learning that a lot of women are starting several full-fledged businesses and they're also starting businesses from their home. In fact, women-owned businesses are growing at a rate of 5% while women of color account for nearly 90% of that. However, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Even with all the women entrepreneurs there are, their revenue growth rate is well under men, which only perpetuates the gender pay gap. The other issue we're finding is that according to um, a study from Bank of America, women say that their biggest concern is access to capital and that 58% just don't have that same access to capital as men do. So in starting a business, what we're finding out is that women experience a lot of the same issues. Um, several that um, happen in the corporate world, such as less time because of childcare and household duties, and also potentially less help from their peer networks, which are often smaller than that of men. So, Challen, we've talked about this at length. How do you think the experience is different from men
2: and women? I think out of the gate, there's a lot of um, differences from, you know, even from graduating university. I mean, you talked about being the only woman in your class for um, computer science, right? There are things like that, that you're just not trained the same way. There are differences in appreciation of soft skills versus hard skills. There's different mentorship. Um, Oftentimes men have men to look up to and women may not. um, They may not be as comfortable working with male mentors. So there are a lot of different things like that, that are kind of hard to quantify, but are very impactful for how a female might grow throughout her career. I mean, I don't know how many times we look at Organizations that are more hierarchical, and you've got lots of women down at the bottom and at the middle management level, but are they really growing through the ranks to become leadership? Um, I, you see a lot of them drop out. A lot of times that's attributed to women wanting to start a family, which I don't know the numbers behind that, but I don't necessarily believe that at all. And I actually was reading an article recently around how that's just not really the case around the pandemic either. Um, It may not be a choice. It may just be that either the female makes a little bit less. So it it makes more sense for her to remove herself from the workforce to take care of the family, which, of course, is a different situation than any other year. Right. But anyway, there are a lot of different ways that I think females experience growing throughout their career differently. And that goes for entrepreneurship as well as the corporate side of things. So what I was alluding to earlier that's obviously corporate. There are much more hoops to jump through, more structure to grow through. But then on the entrepreneurial side, there are hoops to get to starting a business. Like you just mentioned, access to capital is huge. Women having a network who can introduce them to people who can give them access to to capital. All of those things are barriers to entry for females becoming entrepreneurs. I don't want to be short-sighted because our episode with Rachel, she actually talked about entrepreneurship looking differently for women too. It might be that they open a caregiving location for children. That's still a business that they're starting. It just doesn't quite look like a software company, right? So lots of different ways we can look at this. One thing I wanted to kind of double click into was Women don't usually oversell themselves. How many times have we heard the stat that men will apply to a job that they have 25% of the skills noted and women will wait until they have every single skill checked until they'll apply to that job. It's just a different um, mentality and a different approach. The same thing goes on the investment side. So if a woman is trying to get funding, you have to sell yourself, you have to sell your business, you have to sell your value prop, you have to sell a vision that may not be reality yet. And um, when we talk a a little bit later, Eric can talk about this very clearly. I know um, he has lots of experience going through this, even, you know, from a male perspective. So for a female who might be a little bit more risk averse or cautious, I'm sure it's doubly as um, intimidating, right? As we we started in the podcast talking about how tough entrepreneurship can be for women, um, it's equally hard for men. um, In some situations, it it requires vulnerability, tenacity, and grit, regardless of your gender. And I have somebody with us today. Moss um, mentioned him earlier in the episode, Eric Severinghouse, who I've worked with for several years on um, a one-on-one capacity, as well as through mentorship. And he, his experience foils this conversation perfectly, from running through corporate structure with IBM to founding Koala Deal and Simple Relevance going through Chicago's first Techstars class, um, being part of Spring CM, which got acquired by DocuSign. Um, And now he's the EVP of business development at Connexium. He has a wealth of experience on the corporate side and the entrepreneurship side. And he also is releasing a book in the next month or so about entrepreneurship. So you have a lot of different experience. Eric, you want to give us a quick intro into uh, where you're at today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, let me say thanks for having me. I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity and I'm excited to be here with you folks. Uh, so I been acquired into DocuSign through a company that I was helping run called Spring CM in Chicago. And I was at DocuSign for about two years and then uh, parted ways with DocuSign at the beginning of this year and began the next stage of my kind of journey, helping an old friend build a company called Connexium, which is a a fantastic company that does invoice and and kind of document processing automation.
2: Sounds super sexy and very B2B. (laughs)
3: <laughs> you know, most of my career has been in the business to business kind of software as a service world. And um, most of it makes people's eyes glaze over. Most of it is not stuff that, you know, is is particularly fascinating at cocktail parties and things like that. I try to make up for that with things like mountain climbing and, and you know, stories of, of death defying adventures. So at least I've got something to talk about. I'll, I'll tell you what, what one of my, other, maybe one of my other interesting uh, things that I've learned is oftentimes the less sexy a company is, the or a, a space or a market, a lot of times there's more opportunities in those places. I, I've, I've got a, um, a friend named Mike Griffin, who, who uh, his entire thesis around investing is in things like what he calls dirty jobs. The idea that nobody wants to do plumbing or go into crawl spaces. Everybody wants to do kind of cool, sexy technology and that kind of.
2: That's a really good point. And actually, of course, I have some some questions that I lined up for you, but that actually triggers a question for me. A lot of what women might find more appealing or what they might be better at would be probably more consumer focused. Right. Or potentially retail, depending on what the opportunity is. But it sounds like maybe that's not the the best inroad um, into entrepreneurship because you by default are competing against other creative people and you're doing things that are more sexy. So people kind of tend to go that direction. Right. So maybe the more interesting approach would be how you can enable retail organizations, things like that. Right.
3: I I don't necessarily want to validate the idea that women's experience is around consumer products and and men is around, you know, industrial tech or something like that. Right. I, I think some of those things are antiquated notions. And so I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm ready to validate that. What I, what I would, kind of respond with is for all of us we can only start businesses or build businesses or build careers around things that we can imagine. And so you know when when we're in school I, I do a lot of like helping pitch competitions for undergrads and what you see is is there's a lot of things around like how to get fast food delivered a little bit faster than it's delivered right now or how to get booze there quicker right because these are like the problem spaces that undergrads tend to understand. And then, depending on where your, your career and your life experiences take you, it broadens the aperture of things, problems that you that need solving and that you can imagine fixing. And and so, regardless of your gender, if if your if your entire world is sort of bound up in childcare, you're probably not going to go start a business-to-business software as a service company because that's just literally a set of problems that you don't imagine and, and can't imagine going to fix. Right, and so. So I I think it's important, regardless of gender, regardless of kind of any of those sorts of things, especially earlier in your career, seeking out a variety of experiences that really expands the problem sets of things that you can then contemplate going to solve. Because then later, when you have some of the opportunities to go do some of those things, um, you've now got a much wider range of businesses to choose from that you could think about starting.
2: I think that's an interesting solution to a common problem, which women find it hard to get investment for female specific products or services, because a lot of times the investment dollars are owned by men um, and they just can't understand where the value really comes in for a menstrual cup or, you know, things like that you've just never had to experience the challenge of. And I think that's a really interesting take. Um, and I've been reading more on how female investors are beginning to become much more successful because they're willing to listen to those more interesting, creative, feminine-focused problems that need to be solved. And it, I think in Chicago, I'm sure you're familiar with her. They focus on female um, organizations. And so I feel like it's just... it's shown a a little bit of white space where women can own something that men just don't even know about, right? I mean, usually.
3: (laughs) Yeah. so, So, you know, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, people that are underrepresented in venture capital, it then makes it really hard to get venture capitalists to viscerally understand the problem right like like venture capitalists in san francisco may be competing against each other for you know in knife fights in the streets over the foamiest cappuccino or you know the newest patagonia vest right and and i'm, I'm sort of generalizing here but it's also really really true like venture capitalists understand problems of rich white guys that drink a lot of coffee and wear a lot of patagonia vests and albert shoes and I, I see this very much sort of identifying as one of those people who has, you know, <laughs> who has Albert shoes and all, all the rest. Right. And so anybody that's going in and, 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 you know, this is this is true of any business, I think. But but anybody who's going in and trying to pitch people who don't viscerally understand the problem space that they're coming from, whether that's around feminine centric products, whether that's around problems that that people in unbanked areas or food deserts or whatever face, these are not problems that your typical Sand Hill Road venture capitalist has to deal with. And, and and so the challenge then becomes: number one, obviously, there's a systematic change that that hopefully is happening around changing the way capital is held and 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 you know some of the ways that, that we think about that, right? There's power structure changes, but then there's also the the flip side of it, which is recognizing that if you are an entrepreneur in the year 2021 and wanting to go pitch people for capital, understanding how to contextualize those challenges in ways that those people can understand. Because at the end of the day, whatever you're selling, whether it's your business, whether it's a product, whatever it might be, you know, it's, it's all about building that, that connection, that relationship, that sort of empathy between you and the other person to get them to understand it. And and you may have to take them a little bit further, but there still is oftentimes a way that you might be able to to understand or sort of bridge that gap.
1: I love that you said that because I think there's a lot about, um, I would say, pitching with a purpose, like having, you know, really believing in the product or believing in what you're doing. And that brings me a little bit to your background. Um, I went to your website. I, you know, I loved what you wrote about, you know, climbing Everest and wondering, did you start with the book first or did you go climb Everest? And how did all of that come, you know, how did that all come around? Tell us a little bit about your experience there.
3: Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of both. Uh, As I was building uh, this company, Simple Relevance, I was going through all these crazy experiences. You you guys have probably all seen Silicon Valley. And what's fascinating about Silicon Valley to me, for a while it triggered post-traumatic stress disorder for me. And, uh, literally like I I would feel my heart rate. I would feel my pulse changing. I I actually couldn't watch it for a while. It actually triggered physiological symptoms in me. And and yet at the same time, it felt very blasé compared to some of the stories that I was living through. And, and, you know, we can go into some of the crazy startup stories if you want. But so as I was going through it, I was always joking. Like, this is going to be a story in the book. This is going to be a vignette in the book. And and I, I just, I kept this like running list of like crazy things that happened because I thought at some point I'm going to go tell this story. And then we went through some very challenging periods with simple relevance. I talk about a lot of this in the book. We ended up having, you know, what, what was a quote unquote successful exit. uh, But what, you know, was not terribly successful for my investors and what felt like an abject failure and disappointment to me personally. Uh, And then, you know, a little less than a year after that, I got laid off from the company that had acquired me. And I found myself in a a pretty dark and kind of hard place. Um, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about imposter syndrome and, and I know that's one of the topics. And, and there was a lot of that kind of going through my head and it was just, it was a really challenging time in my life. And I I, I wasn't ready to go get another job. And there were two things that that I kind of wanted to do. And, and one was I had this book sort of floating around in my mind And so I I just started writing for hours a day and I had no idea that it would actually be anything I would end up publishing. But I literally was just trying to get this sort of obsession in my mind out and onto a piece of virtual paper so that it was no longer sitting around in my mind. And then the other thing that that I decided was that entrepreneurship, I had allowed entrepreneurship to rob me of years of my life in terms of not being able to do some of the other things that I wanted to do. And at the top of that list that I felt like I'd constantly been um, postponing was Mount Everest and, and climbing Everest, which I wanted to do for years. And it turned out to be much easier for me to climb Mount Everest than to write and publish a book. And I mean that totally, totally seriously. And I was able to successfully climb Mount Everest as I was going through a lot of these thoughts on mental resilience and other things like that. And when I, when I got down, you know, no, no sooner has somebody high fived you and said congratulations on making it up Everest. And they say, so what's next? What are you going to do next? And um, and the only answer I could come up with was uh, I want to get this book published. I, I felt like the message had crystallized into something I felt like was really, really powerful to share with other entrepreneurs around some of my struggle and some of the things that I'd gone through and, and some of the things I was hoping to help other people be able to deal with. And so they sort of evolved in parallel and the book changed dramatically. Mountaineering wasn't going to be anywhere in the book until I I climbed Everest. And, um, a lot of people kind of said, you know, this is too interesting. You can't leave this part out of it. And so, um, I, I found that I was able to, to, to sort of bring another context for mental resilience, which is the literal climbing of a mountain to the figurative climbing of a mountain, uh, which is, or the, or the metaphorical one, which is, you know, trying to start and build a company and some of the mental and emotional challenges that go along with it.
2: Well, I think at the beginning of this, you had, um, I think maybe even before we were recording, you were mentioning that as you were writing in the book, you were focusing on some of the problems that you were solving um, or the problems that you were experiencing. And then you flipped the script to be like, okay, but what are some of the solutions? So coming from that um, what are some of the lessons learned? I mean, and actually, if you'll first give a quick premise to the book for those listeners who aren't aware, I know I'm I'm very familiar. I absolutely love the story. I think the analogy is it fits to a T. But if you'll give a quick overview, real quick.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and, and appreciate the opportunity. So it, it came out of my own personal experience starting and building startups, and I, th- there's this belief that I have that most of the people that get invited onto conversations like this are masters of the world type who have built lots of great companies, sold them, made lots of money. And then they go and and they get invited to come speak to entrepreneurs and they say, what's your secret to success? And they say, work really hard, have a lot of grit, have a lot of toughness and, and everything works out in the end. And the reason for that is because there's a tremendous amount of selection bias In that we know from the data, we know from statistics that 75% of venture backed companies are going to fail to return capital to investors. And yet, none of that 75% gets invited to come talk. Or when they do get invited to come talk, they skip over the failures and they talk about the successful ones. And so, you know, the human mind processes anecdotes far better than it does data. And so we're left with this idea that even though we know in the back of our mind, these statistics around businesses failing, we assume that because of all these anecdotes, we're our business is going to be successful. Those other people must fail, but somebody who's hardworking and trustworthy and, and a good person like me, smart and everything else, like I'm going to be the one that succeeds, obviously. And and, and sometimes that happens. And even when that happens, and I've known entrepreneurs who, um, Aaron Houghton, who, challenge you, you knew through the Simple Relevance journey, um, Aaron speaks very openly about, after he had a nine figure exit and sold his company for hundreds of millions of dollars and, you know, verged on a mental breakdown. John Roa, another great Chicago entrepreneur has written a book about the same, the same topic, which is fantastic. And so, so whether you succeed or in my case, whether you fail and and ultimately sell your company for, you know, not what you're expecting to get out of it. And that comes with its own hardships, its own challenges, its own set of mental and emotional strain. And, you know, my, it's starting to change a little bit now, but certainly 10 years ago, Whenever you talked about what it is to be an entrepreneur, all anybody said was do more faster, hustle harder, grind more. And I think that's really bad advice. And and I think it leads entrepreneurs who um, research shows are more prone to things like depression and anxiety, addiction, suicidality, uh, other things than the general population. So we take this vulnerable population, we give them really bad advice. And it leads to really bad outcomes um, uh, around sort of their mental health, their mental resilience. Suicide levels for entrepreneurs are far higher than the general population, tragically. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, really kind of challenging dynamic. And it's one that we sort of push people into and say, this is the American dream. This is what we should celebrate. This is what you should be doing. And once you're in it, you should just hustle more and, and do more faster. And, and and it leads to very bad outcomes. So so that's the premise of the book. That the reason that I wrote it was to try to combine and make people aware of the research that's out there, the facts that are out there, the data that's out there, but then combine it with my own personal experiences. Uh, If if this was on video, I'd be wearing my t-shirt that says failed entrepreneur on it because I I like for people to see like this is what a failed entrepreneur looks like. Um, So so that people can have context around that and they can also then be aware that even if that happens, even if you fall into that 75% that fails, that doesn't mean that life can't go on and be fantastic afterwards.
1: That is amazing. And, and, you know, we've talked about before in some of the other podcasts that when you're uncomfortable, that's when you really grow. And I think it's the same thing about failure. Tell us about one of your failures that you, really you think of as a success that anyone else would categorize as a failure.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, the, the best example at this point for me, the, the one that was the most public, the one that, that really kind of grates on me was, was, was simple relevance. And it was, um, there was a, a moment in time, thanks to some of the PR help From Challen and and, you know some of the things that were going well in the business, where I was literally the cover boy for you know Chicago entrepreneurship.
2: I remember that uh, literally that cover page actually
3: (laughs) exactly Um, literally not figuratively and and I was you know I I was the person being called to meet with heads of state to represent Chicago entrepreneurship as you know this is the future of the city right and um, you know I was winning awards we were winning awards I should say but it felt like it was me. It felt like it was very personal to me. And as that was happening and, and as the business began to struggle and, and as you know, some certain risks that we took didn't pay off and, and other things around that it, it becomes very disorienting, I, I guess. It's, so, so there are two, two sides of this coin. There's, there's this, there's this one side, which is like delusions of grandeur, which is I think I'm great and nobody else takes me seriously. And then there's this other side, which is the whole world thinks I'm great. And I think I'm feeling like shit. I don't think I know what I'm doing. I don't think that I'm capable of doing this. And each of those is is really stressful and really challenging in its own right. I find the, the imposter syndrome part of that to be particularly toxic because there's this loneliness that happens. There's this outside the world feeling that Hey, this guy knows what he's doing. We want to go have him meet the most important people in the world. We're going to put him up as the poster child of what everybody should aspire to be. I was literally getting stopped in the streets sometimes, where people would say, "Oh, I saw this, and it was amazing."
2: Sorry, Sandra, but to be fair, you're like six five and, and redheaded, so <laughs> <laughs> very easy to recognize. Um, yeah,
3: which I don't think helps. <laughs> um,
2: I'm sorry, you were in a, a very good thought.
3: No, but. But then you you go home and, and you look at your balance sheet and you worry about whether you're going to be able to make payroll next month. And you think about this idea, not only that you're going to fail, but that everybody that's held you up as the paragon of of exemplary behavior and the person to emulate. You're, you're basically going to be found out to be a fraud. And 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 to be clear, I don't mean that in the sense of like you were talking about Elizabeth Holmes, where we were lying to people and those lies came out and, and you know, were, were exposed. I mean it from the sense of we were working hard, trying to do the right things, took some calculated risks that didn't pay off, but it still makes you feel like a fraud. And that is a really, really psychically damaging place to be, especially when you, when you feel like you can't really talk about that with people and you're trying to figure out how to manage it. And I I, I fervently believe that the entrepreneurial industry does not prepare entrepreneurs for the 75% scenario. We know 75% of entrepreneurs are going to fail and yet nowhere do they say, if you find yourself in that 75%, here's how to think about it. Anyway, I, I, I forgot where I ended up on that tangent, but that's, that's that thought.
2: No, I mean, Moss asked, you know, where, where where would others think you were successful and and you felt like a failure? And I think that's almost the definition of imposter syndrome, right? I wonder, and you've been a mentor to me. There have been times that I've come to you and I've said, I'm a member of the senior leadership team. I'm really proud of it, but I still kind of feel like I'm not there yet. Like I am not, I'm, I'm not a leader. How do I be a leader or feel like a leader and a, a lot of it I've attributed to like the female psyche. I've, I, I maybe I'm totally wrong, um, but not just as you mentor me, but as you've mentored other men and women, how do you help them overcome feeling like they're going through imposter syndrome?
3: I, I am a big believer that it's about giving permission. And, and I'll tell you maybe a quick story. When I was a very young buck at, at IBM, um, probably my first year out of school, I, I had a peer and, and this peer was one year ahead of me, and he was also like kind of a goofy redheaded guy, super smart. I mean, we almost looked the same. We, we were in a very similar role. We both graduated from North Carolina Chapel Hill. And, and at one point I was talking to a different mentor and, uh, and I was asking, like, to me as an IT specialist at this time, the cool kids were the IT architects. And I know that probably sounds ridiculous to anybody who's ever thought of what cool kids are. It's not IT architects, but to me as an IT specialist, the cool kids seem like the IT architects. And I wanted to be an IT architect. And I had like this 10 year thing of how I might turn into an IT architect. And I sat down with this guy who was a senior IT architect and said, how do I become basically you? How do I get on your path? And he looked at me and he said, well, just go say that that's what you are. Go say that you're an IT architect. And I said, well, but I'm, I'm, I'm by job code. Like if you go look at, look me up in SAP, right? It doesn't say architect. It says it specialist. And he said, yeah, but nobody looks at that. He said, just change the bottom of your email, you know, change what's on your business card and start telling people you're an IT architect. So I said, okay, what the hell? This guy told me to do it. I'll give it a shot. Right. So, so I changed my, I changed my email address and I changed my business card. Now keep in mind, IBM had made zero change to my status there. So I've got this other friend. And he and I worked on the same projects. He was a year ahead of me, a little bit more senior. He never had, or he didn't at that time, have that conversation with anybody. And he continued to be an IT specialist because that's what he is. Now, we were in the same group. A year later, they split the group and they put the specialists one place and they put the architects the other place. And you wanted to be with the architects. We had cooler projects. We had more money. we, We had cooler shit going on. And sure enough, I get put over with the architects and he gets put with the specialists. And he calls me up and he says, how the hell did you make this happen? And I said, you know, I I have no idea, man. I said, this is just where they told me to go. And so he calls my boss and he says, why in the world does Eric get to go here? And I am stuck here. And my boss just responded and said, I don't know. He's an IT architect. And like nothing had changed. It was just literally how I presented myself. The thing that, that I went and just put on it. And it changed everybody's perception around me because I sort of claimed that voice, I claimed that perspective. I said, this is, this is what I'm on the path to being, and I'm going to go ahead and claim it. And everybody else responded to me in that way. Now, I don't know how much of this is a male or female thing. I don't know how much of it is, you know, I'm a privileged white guy thing, but you know, I, I learned a lesson in that moment, which is that if you want people to think of you as something you need to go represent yourself as either that thing or at least on the path, like that thing in training and and challenge going back to, you know, some of the conversations you and I have had over the years and, and that I've had with a number of other, you know, female leaders that, that I've worked with and helped develop. I, I think a big part of it is not holding yourself back, forcing other people to hold you back. Um, you know, being willing to go claim that voice and say, this is who I am. This is the path that I'm on. This is what I want to be. And, having the confidence or the willingness. I don't want to say confidence because I think sometimes confidence comes later. Like I didn't have the confidence, for instance, that I was, that I was, you know, that thing, it was more that I had the willingness to go claim the voice and then, um, to grow into it over time.
2: That's actually so interesting that you say that Moss and I were actually connecting on the last podcast where I interviewed at Avianos Moss interviewed me And her question was, are you strong enough to handle these men who you're going to have to manage? And my question was, are they strong enough to handle me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so it actually, exactly what you just said. And I think earlier on in my career, when you and I actually worked together one-on-one and you were my boss, I wasn't there yet. I was not that confident. And I think through your mentorship, which I hope our listeners gather from this is that there was this, this little bit of, there was some grit to it, um, but then there was also just believing in yourself and having other people help you believe in yourself. So you absolutely did that for me and it led me to Moss and it led me to this podcast. So thank you. <laughs> it's true. It really is like having somebody tell you that you're a badass worker, regardless of your gender, is really important to hear to improving your confidence and your ability, I think. But Moss, you want to kick us off to the solution section. I think this is the perfect segue.
1: I think so, too. Um, I always laugh that, you know, me and Chalnor are about the same height. She might be a little bit taller than me, and we're more in the five feet range. So, you know, we're both small, but I think very mighty when it comes to It's true. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, this is the section where we talk about solutions, um, you know, building a balanced future. And there's, there's some great things that you've mentioned, you know, having that mental acuity to know um, what you need and when you need it, having that confidence, um, you know, to broach the right subjects and talk to the right people. What else would you say um, to avoid that, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing and really stand We keep saying stand in your strength and stand in your power as you go down this path.
3: Well, I love that. And I think a lot of it is, is managing how people perceive you. Not, not from a, I'm a big believer in coming to something from a place of authenticity, but being authentic doesn't always mean putting your shit onto the rest of the world either. Right. You can come to something from a place that includes authenticity, but also includes poise, strength, some of those sorts of um, some of those sorts of characteristics, and I think in particular, you know, there have been a number of studies about how women use more verbal tics, use more uh, ways to show kind of subservience. There, I just did it, kind of subservience, right? Rather than claiming that claiming it and saying women show tend to use more words that show subservience than men do, and and, and those things then have an effect, I think, on how the audience perceives you, rightly or wrongly, and. One of the transformative elements for me, as I was learning how to pitch businesses, and Challen will remember this, is I was going through TechStars, which is a um, it's 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 a very kind of prestigious accelerator for early stage companies, and we had to get up on this big stage and give this big pitch. As I was doing pitch practice, I thought I was being particularly enthusiastic and particularly engaging, and I had a speech coach uh, session where the speech coach asked me to get as wildly outside of my comfort zone as I could possibly imagine. And and being from the South, I actually imagined a Southern Baptist preacher, like hellfire and brimstone. And I got as animated and as just absolutely crazy as I could (laughs) in terms of how I pitched this. And and this was recorded. And so they showed me my normal pitch. They They showed me my trying to be enthusiastic pitch. And then they showed me my absolutely insane pitch. And what I realized when I watched it was that that the absolutely insane pitch was probably about 10 percent too far calibrated, but not like 90 percent too far calibrated the way that I expected that it might be. And and so what it taught me was that, that I had my own mental governor that was holding me back, that was saying, don't go beyond this limit because you'll look silly. And at some point I started to realize, actually, you don't look silly, you look engaging, you become a, a more reasonable presenter. And and so my suggestion would be that, that again, coming to this from a place of humility, but, but as, as someone who may be trying to change the way that they present themselves to their audience, try to get so far outside of that comfort zone. And then try to do some self-evaluation and say, is that who I want to be? Like, maybe I need to dial it back a little bit, but figuring out how to break through that barrier is infinitely more difficult than figuring out how to then dial it back a little bit.
2: I actually remember you going through those trainings and and all of the other the, the other 10 companies in that class. And every single one of them felt the same way that you did. Right. The men and the women were all like, I look like a crazy person with my arms flailing wide, my voice projecting so loudly. And a lot of those same um, rules actually apply to media relations. And um, when you're doing any sort of broadcast um, opportunity, like. You cannot smile too much. People will not think that you're too happy. And it's the same kind of theory. And I I love that rule. As we've talked, I've taken notes on a few of the other solutions that you've inadvertently told us. But one that I think applies to both entrepreneurship and the corporate world and any person of color or any gender, whoever you are, is to separate yourself from the business. Do not let whatever you're in, whatever your role is, whatever your title is, define who you are as a person. And I think that was one of the things you said earlier that really hit home for me because so many times it's like, did I get the title? Did I get the, the investment? And, and it just truly takes you over. Um, so that was one solution that I, I found. Um, did you want to add anything to that?
3: Yeah. The, the one thing I'll, I'll do is I'll, I'll suggest a way specifically to do that because I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's one of the most important skills that we can learn as human beings is to separate our humanity from our title. One of the specific ways that I try to do that is to sit down and and I'll spend five minutes journaling. How do I feel about myself? How do I feel about my family? And how do I feel about my business on a scale of one to 10? And then why? And the reason that I try to do that is to try to separate and to recognize I can feel like a two on my business. And I can still feel like an eight about my family and I can still feel a nine about myself. And that's OK. So often we hold like ourself to the lower to the lowest thing that's sort of on that list. Um, But but trying to sort of tease that apart is, is a really important tool that I've had to learn over the years.
2: I think that's a great resource. Um, and I'm sure, Caitlin, we can find something that's tangible that we can share with the audience as well. The other thing I heard was don't fall victim to do more faster. And I think this is something coming out of the pandemic We've talked about it on the podcast, that is finally taking hold. Like you do the more you hustle does not make you the cooler person. Being able to, like you said, bring yourself separate from what you're doing all day, every day um, is really important. And the do more faster thing, I don't know who thought of that or why, but the the normal everyday person cannot do 27 hours worth of work in 24 hours. It's just not possible.
3: Yeah. More than that, the the analogy I use all the time is that. Olympic athletes only train for about 40 hours a week. And and they don't do that because they're lazy. They only train for 40 hours a week because they recognize that the rest and recovery is absolutely critical to then getting the most out of that training. The thing that I remind myself every time I start to put in a 60 hour week is your IQ drops, your decision making goes down. I could send you guys a million resources on this. But the efficacy of your work drops faster than than your productivity actually makes happen. And then the other interesting thing is our brain releases dopamine when we're working really, really hard to tell ourselves we're doing a really good job when, in fact, statistics show that it's just actually not true. And so incorporating rest, incorporating stillness, incorporating presence, uh, the biggest lesson that I learned from Mount Everest Um, other than um, some of the stuff around sort of like conquering self-doubt, the biggest lesson that I learned uh, around getting to Mount Everest was the critical part of it was resting prior to to the summit push so that I had the energy when I needed it. And if you allow yourself to get exhausted in the day-to-day, then you don't have that energy when you need it. Just very quickly, the, the, the one other thing I remind everybody of is you will, for the rest of your life, have more work to do then there will be time to do it. If you total up work, family commitments and everything else, there is more to do than any of us have time to do it. And so for the rest of our lives, we have to start to understand how do we prioritize those things and then say there will be things that simply will not be, will not get done. And that's just going to be a fact of life.
2: I feel like we're all nodding our head very, very aggressively and agreeing. And Moss, that sounds so similar to some of the tips that you've given of just giving yourself grace and balance. Love it.
1: I mean, I'm a huge proponent of making sure your physical health, your mental health and your spiritual health is all in sync. And um, I love that. And I love what you said about rest because, uh, you know, whenever I feel burnt out, I go on vacation. (laughs) But part of that vacation, you know, obviously during COVID, we haven't really been able to go a lot of places. But I, you know, around Christmas time, I just stopped going on social media. So I kind of divorced myself from as much of my digital gadgets as I could. And it was amazing. I read like three books. I did yoga and meditation every day. I went on runs. So I did all the things that, you know, I supposedly had no time for during my busy work weeks. Right. So it it reframed my entire year and it's repositioned how I start in the mornings. I, you know, I start my mornings now with tea and meditation and then a workout instead of opening up my phone, because I figure if there's a real emergency happening, they're going to call me, you know, they're not going to ping me (laughs) on teams. So... Um, yeah. And also it reframes in your mind what an, what an
2: emergency even really is. I love that. Um, and I'll add one last. I'll add one last solution here, too. Um, and it stems it's kind of twofold. It's finding a mentor or finding a network that you can um, be really open with and vulnerable and empathetic and human. Um, one, Eric, you had introduced me to a mentor way back in the day who I still connect with at least four times a year. Um, she's fantastic and she keeps me grounded and I appreciate her specifically. Um, but then also one of the groups that I also met through during being in the startup world um, is now called Embolden. And it's a group where it's a bunch of women who wanted to have real female relationships, um, professional and personal um, at a deeper level than just going to have some wine at a happy hour. And so one of the key pieces of that organization, Embolden, is a reciprocity ring. And it's an opportunity where everybody in the room thinks of something that they just haven't been able to to do on their own. And they throw it out to the group. Like one person asked to meet Michelle Obama and it happened. (laughs) Um, I asked to be on more boards and it happened. Um, I actually asked for a new hire and I found Caitlin. But you throw out these big asks and if somebody knows somebody who knows somebody, they'll connect you. And I think that's something that... Is very female. I think men naturally have these networks, whereas women are not comfortable asking as much. Um, so, actually, the first session, I was very uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't even know what to ask for. And then I sat there and I was like, oh, I actually have 20 things I want to ask for. Um, but it's it was just um, kind of an organization and a structure that helps women get out of their own way. Um, and I absolutely loved it.
3: At some point, I would love to understand why you think that dynamic exists. Because my, my, if I was to stereotype, and I generally avoid stereotyping, but if, if I was to stereotype based on my experiences, and maybe this is just because I'm antisocial, but I think that women tend to do a much better job of nurturing relationships, particularly with one another, over time than men do.
2: No, we can chat about it later. Um, but I think in short, it's, it's not that they don't have the networks. It's that they don't often want to ask for things from their network. I'll give you a little tutorial on that later if you like. But I don't know, Moss, do you agree
1: if that, that's the difference? Yeah, I think we're really great at building communities. So I agree with you there, Eric. But, um, you know, oftentimes when we need help, that's where we're scared to raise our hands because, you know, we're told that you can do everything. You can be a great mother. You can be a great corporate leader. You can create, you know, and and sometimes... Yes, you can, but it, it takes a village, you know, you, you need help along the way. So, Eric, you know, um, I wasn't going to ask this because you hate it. You, you said you hated it earlier when people ask you, what's your next Everest? But I'm going to do it. What are you working on now? <laughs> I
3: never said I hated it. I said it happens all the time.
1: <laughs> so what is it? What are you doing next?
3: It's it's right now it's finishing out this journey. So it's, it's getting the, the book is released on April 27th. And you know, publishing the book for me is is something that I hope will be a catalyst to change the way that we think about mental resilience, particularly for entrepreneurs. And and so, you know, my, my hope is I, I, I oftentimes call myself the most overeducated entrepreneur in the world. I, I got an undergrad in entrepreneurship from North Carolina. I got an MBA in entrepreneurship from Kellogg. I've been through TechStars. I've been through a half a dozen other entrepreneurial mentoring programs, and nobody ever taught me about mental resilience as a critical component to entrepreneurship. My hope and prayer is that by the time that, that my daughter, you know, if, if she decides she wants to be an entrepreneur in 20 years, I hope that if she goes through similar educational systems, that they will explain many of these concepts around mental and emotional resilience for her so that she will be better prepared to manage the journey. Um, and, and so it's, it's really, you know, the, the interesting thing about Climbing Everest Is everybody talks about getting to the top. And and mountaineers oftentimes know that more, more deaths and and more accidents happen on the way back down than actually happen as as a result of going up to the summit. And, And so I feel like I've publishing the book is a little bit of getting to the summit for me in some ways, but that way back down, that making sure that the book has the impact on the entrepreneurial community that I hope that it has that's really, that's really kind of the next phase of the journey. And then, you know, beyond that, we'll see what happens. There's, there's certainly more literal and figurative mountains kind of in my future. Um, and, and I haven't quite put the pinpoint on exactly what they are yet, but, um, but we'll see.
2: And Eric, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your background. And I think, um, our podcast is all about storytelling and bold stories and yours is very bold. And I think there are so many things that people can learn from it. So I appreciate your time. Awesome. Um,
0: So for this week's inspiration section, we broke it down into inspiration for people who want to support entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, um, and then specific inspiration for beginning entrepreneurs as well. So if you know an entrepreneur or want to support growing businesses, one of the easiest ways to do that is to engage with their content, engage with their social media, leaving a review, uh, all of those things are free and take literally two seconds to tap the screen. Uh, you can also support with your dollars, making a purchase that aligns with your personal values, whether that's sustainability, social justice, um, supporting female owned businesses. Um, it, it ultimately comes down to supporting, putting your your dollars where your mouth is, right? Being able to, um, financially support these growing businesses. And if you're looking for a resource uh, to find businesses that you can help support there, Foxtrot has a great resource that we'll link in the blog to find specifically women-owned businesses. Um, We'll we'll compile a couple of resources for our favorites. Um, And also being, if you're supporting an entrepreneur personally, like Eric said, it can get really tunnel vision um, when you're building up a business and when you're putting your all into something that's your dream. Take the time to to meet with them and remind them that they have other dreams. Remind them that they have other things that are important to them. Help them step outside of that snow globe and and see from a new perspective. Um if you are an entrepreneur. Uh, We would love to hear about your experiences creating a reciprocity rings with your closest friends, with your entrepreneurial colleagues. Even if you have five people that you invite and say, everybody bring one friend. So it's a group that can expand your network a little bit, provide support and give you a space to ask your most daring asks or ask for support on your biggest, most far flung dreams. Um, it's, it's the first step in building the confidence to achieve those goals, but it is also a really great way to expand your network outwards and to get to build these these strong connections that can help you in the future, too. And from there, we'll have Jill go ahead and wrap up. Thanks, Caitlin. And thank you, Eric, so much for your time today.
2: We really appreciate it. Um, to our listeners, if you'd like to buy Scale Your Everest, we'll link it on our blog at www.weareoverworked.com. Um, as well
1: as any other resources that we've mentioned throughout uh, the podcast episode today. If you'd like to share any comments or feedback you have with us or just stay in touch, you can follow and tag us on Instagram or Facebook at WeAreOverworked or at WOverworked on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe to our channels to get notified when we release our newest
3: episodes.